This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. I just was wondering if the CRTC will have the power to regulate algorithms. Again, the concept of discoverability is ensuring that um, as part of these platforms, Canadian content becomes more visible towards f- for Canadians or actually any audience to, to watch or, or see. There, there won't be any requirement, obviously, for, for, for users, just like so, it's so the case the, right now with the YouTube. Yes, then they will have the ability that, that, to that, regulate that is, that is those not, algorithms. I'm just not sure not, why I'm not able to get a yes or a no answer. That is, that is not a yes. I highly doubt that many people had discoverability on their 2021 Canadian politics bingo card. But here we are, weeks into a high-profile debate over Bill C-10, the government's Broadcasting Act reform bill, with the issue of discoverability of Canadian content, a policy tug-of-war between supporters that want the CRTC to intervene by mandating the discoverability of Canadian content on sites and services such as YouTube and TikTok, and critics that argue that the approach would raise significant freedom of expression and net neutrality concerns. But what exactly is discoverability, and how would it impact both users and the thousands of Canadian creators that have already found success on digital platforms? Fenwick McKelvey is a communications professor at Concordia University who has written more about the discoverability and algorithmic media issues than anyone in Canada. He has regularly participated in CRTC hearings and was the co-author of a top study on the issue commissioned by Canadian Heritage. He joins me on the podcast to talk about discoverability, his frustration with its implementation in Bill C-10, and the potential consequences for Canadian creators. Fenwick, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Michael, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know. I'm really happy that you take time out to come on. You know, you've been someone who has been researching issues related to broadcast platform regulation for many years. And I think it's fair to say that two of your primary focal points, discoverability and independent creators and kind of the, the role that they play in policymaking, have suddenly become really prominent on the political landscape as attention to Bill C-10 has escalated and some of these issues have even made their way into the House of Commons. Why don't we start with discoverability and and the role of algorithms in determining what people encounter on social media and some of the streaming services? Can you give me a bit of of a history around discoverability and how significant do you think the issue is? Yeah, to me, and and it's funny that I never expected, as you might not have expected discoverability to be so front and center, but it's a history, it's a term with a long history in Canada. And I think it's important, you know, for people listening to understand where this term comes from. And I think also the nuances and differences of discoverability, because I think one of the things that's been to my frustration is how I've tried to kind of push that concept of discoverability and open it up isn't necessarily how we're thinking of the term being used today. And so if you think way, way back to 2015, the CRTC, when it released its blockbuster decision on kind of Let's Talk TV, which had all kinds of inclusions, that was the, one of the later attempts to kind of fix this broadcasting issue. It made this mention of this term discoverability. And it said that discoverability is an issue that affects how Canadians might access content, Canadian content, and that increasingly discoverability might be involving algorithms. And so that's what really 
kind of got me interested in this concept discoverability. And, and it was really very much a Canadian term, thinking about it coming from the Canadian Media Fund about this idea that there was a way that platforms and the internet was changing how audiences engage with and found content. I think that at the root of it, th that's what th that term is trying to speak to, is this way that we're changing how attention and how engagement and access and content has happened in, in, on the internet. And that led, I think, actually to a really for, forgotten about but important event in 2016 called the Discoverability Summit, which the CRTC co-organized with the National Film Board. And to me, that was quite exciting because what it did was bring together game creators, video makers, film and television, app creators to talk across platforms about what's the state of, say, cultural production. And so it was a really an exciting moment. You know, I was able to participate on a panel specifically about what was the role algorithms might be playing in these discoverability questions. And so the end of that, and through the work with Robert Hunt and I, we spent a lot of time trying to think about what would be a big picture of discoverability, how to think about these questions of interface design, dark patterns and algorithmic recommendations and what modest influence they might have and what content people are engaging with. And that was also, I think, motivated at the time by some of the discussions that were happening in Netflix, which you know the government long ago was quite supportive and excited about with Melanie Jolie. And there was this time where Netflix was really defining and redefining itself, moving from having lots of content to really promoting its own content. And we were kind of concerned that Netflix might be using how it's describing and defining its interface to kind of steer audiences towards its own content. And, that, and that's, that's what it's done, it's pretty obvious, but at the time that was kind of ambivalent. So we were trying to think, well, well, what's going on? How are these platforms influencing these questions of discoverability? Now today, that's still an issue, you know, and Spotify, for example, is really promoting podcasts. Podcasts are cheaper because they have lower licensing costs. So you have these questions about how platforms might be making some content more or less prominent. And that fits into this kind of what I would call the big picture discoverability, which I think is still an active concern. Now, when I've gone back and been trying to understand how discoverability has blown up so recently, you know, it's been with some, you know, disappointment that often in a lot of the documentation, you know, particularly the Yale report, discoverability is something connected immediately with this question of Canadian content. And so that's what I would think of as this narrow version of discoverability, which is really just about how do we make and ensure that Canadian content is more accessible on the internet. And that I think is my concern with, you know, C10 in many ways, is that it's really trying to you know, take this big, big problem issue and kind of really just ratchet it down into this kind of very small one about Canadian content, which I know you've talked critically about, and Canadian content and how it might be less or more discoverable. And that gets into a problem for me, which is that, you know, the CMF's own research kind of contends that smart suggestions, this is from a 2016 survey, you know, only affected four, you know, 4% of Canadians found that influential as opposed to other things like word of mouth. And so there's this kind of deeper question now with C10 that's trying to say that, well, discoverability in this narrow sense is going to fix this question of Canadian content. Well, it was these questions of evidence, whether this is as influential as it would like to be. And then also these questions of how do we ex expose that? How do we make sure or understand or audit that? And really, you know, as much as we've been talking about discoverability for years and as someone who's followed the research, you know, we're not that much further along in being able to make claims about, particularly claims that are going to be driving policy about the influence of discoverability or algorithmic recommendation on customers' choices. 
Okay, that's that's super interesting, and it gives the opportunity, I think, to explore a number of different uh, avenues. I lo- let me start with with that, the point you're making about how this has unfolded from a Canadian perspective. If I'm hearing this correctly, it, it started with really questions focused on the kinds of choices that were being made by those services, and you're saying now, of course, with C10 has morphed away from that into simply the question of how do we promote a particular kind of content, in this case, Canadian content, and we can get into how that how that might happen, especially in a user-generated content in, in a few minutes. But it, there's really been a, a shift in focus sort of with an end result in mind as opposed that's focused on the content as opposed to focus on the platforms themselves. Yeah. And I think that, you know, to me, where I would think about it is that I felt as though when you're talking about discoverability, there's a way that it was comparable to broadcasting. And so say that broadcasting was this crisis of attention and we were trying to think about how to make that brought under public accountability and that comparably some of these questions about discoverability resemble broadcasting. And I think what what I've seen in in the, and what I would emphasize is the ambiguity of the bill, you know, that we don't really know what it's going to do at the CRTC. It's making it so that all of these kind of issues are now effectively being downloaded to something which from from what it looks like is going to be something that's going to fall under the the broadcasting file of the CRTC. Okay, that's uh, you know it's interesting to see that evolution. Tell me, how much do we know about how the algorithmic choices are made right now? I mean, one of the responses that that people have raised when you express concern about the CRTC making some of these kinds of choices effectively through this process is that well, someone's making the choices and it's. It might be the Netflix or the YouTubes, uh, or as you mentioned, the Spotify's of the world. How much do we know about how those decisions are made? What do we have from a, an algorithmic transparency perspective right now? Well, that's that's pretty lacking, and it's lacking, I think, for two reasons. One, it's really hard to compel platforms to disclose how that works, although I would emphasize that TikTok is claiming it's going to open an accountability center where people will be able to come in and look at the source code of the, of the recommender system. So whether that's enough or not, depends. And that these systems have also changed over time. So I think that that's one of the also reservations I have is that it's very hard to know. And I look at a lot of the research on that, and it often is very difficult to account for the influence of recommender system because it's so personalized. What it's trying to do is say, well, for this user, this is the type of content it's recommending. And that's very hard as a, as a researcher to make objective claims because you don't necessarily have that access to everybody's individual YouTube feeds. And so I think that that's one of like the big gaps for me in C10 is that there is a clear harm or concern, but it's how do we get into actually measuring that and advancing these transparency and and accountability questions. And I, and I don't necessarily see that in the bill that's actually going to fix that problem, which has been perplexing since, you know, well before the discoverability summit. Yeah, no, I don't think there is anything specifically in the bill. But, you know, certainly one of the points I've been making is, as I read through, say, the Yale report was the the surprising lack of evidence around discoverability. And so I guess I'm hearing from someone who has been focusing on this for far longer than I have, um, that, that that isn't shouldn't come as a surprise at a certain level because there just isn't a whole lot of data or at least evidence suggesting that uh, that that points to some of these discoverability issues, especially as as they pertain, let's say, to discovering Canadian content. Yeah, th- that that's a perplexing question always, you know, Michael, about wh- how influential is the media? And I feel like journalists often like to ratchet up the influence of the media and their own kind of sense of self-worth. But as communication and media studies scholars, I think we're always trying to say it has a limited effect in that these influences are slight or, or, or nuanced. 
And that's really hard in a policy context because people want to say that, you know, this is driving eyeballs here. And it's, and it's hard to say that. And that, I think, was some of the nuance that was lost in the Yale report, trying to kind of bring out that debate and tension in the literature about, you know, how influential these systems are. That still doesn't mean they're not that important to discuss, important to pay attention to. It's just that, you know, trying to be a preserved and objective as best I can academic, that doesn't translate sometimes to the hyperbole that's driving uh, these calls for reforms. Okay. Now, I, I want to come to C10 in a moment, and specifically what it's seeking to do with discoverability around, in particular, user-generated content. But before we do that, is there anyone sort of at that higher level, broad perspective on discoverability? Is there any country uh, that or jurisdiction that you've seen that, that is doing it well, that provides us with a model, leaving aside the challenges of implementation around UGC, but more broadly around the, the some of the algorithmic choices? Well, I think that to me, I look at the EU a lot and what it's doing. And I think that three parts of the EU that I find really interesting is one, it's new directives on you know, bans and certain forms of AI and particularly banning forms that have like trying to manipulate behavior or behavioral consent. And that fits into these questions of dark patterns that people talk about, the ways that it's really hard to opt out of websites that people are trying to raise as a concern about interface design. And I think there's a consumer protection aspect there and also just trying to demarket uh, ways of, of, of uh, algorithms trying to, or, or AIs trying to uh, get you addicted to uh, dopamine hits and, and all these things that you hear in the literature. Second part is then um, the Digital Services and Digital Markets Act, which is in the EU, which I think is really interesting because in, in thinking about C10, you know, there is this real question about, you know, how marketplaces or platforms like, you know, Amazon or, Netflix are really convening these new types of markets. And I think in maybe the case of YouTube, not only are they giving places places for creators to create, but also creating something of a star system. And so I, I think the ways that we're paying attention to questions of vertical integration and concentration, I think are important. And I think a wider question that, that might demand specific attention for cultural policy and creator policy. And as you can see, that to me is adjacent to how C10 is being discussed. But to me, that's a path that seems more promising than you know, collapsing this all into conventional broadcasting policy. And the, um, you know, the, th the third part with the EU is it does have the audiovisual services directive, which talks specifically about prominence criteria, which is trying to think, be, I think, more direct and I think my is my frustration with how discoverability is often talked about is it it's a bit of a weasel world weasel word at present where you know you could talk about what's the quota of the catalog if you want to be specific what's the quota of the catalog that needs to be Canadian content or what are the criteria that there needs to be certain prominence of Canadian content in the um, on the platform and the, so the EU is being direct about that we can debate whether that's a good idea but I feel like that clarity is ultimately more helpful than how I've heard discoverability discussed in least ten. Yeah. So from from uh, from clarity to, uh, to to a complete lack uh, of clarity and, and deep uncertainty, I think, with respect to Bill C ten. Are you aware of anyone that is trying to do what C ten purports to do, particularly around this issue of discoverability for user generated content, which was not something effectively in the initial bill, but by removing one of the exceptions around regulation of content, the government has now taken a pretty strong stand in saying that is something that they want to see happen. 
Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the comparable would be what's going on in the United States, because everybody in the United States, you know, and this is where most hearings come up, is the discussion about whether certain political views are being suppressed or not. And so I find that a funny parallel, because you, in many ways, C-10 is the re-expression of a perpetual anxiety in Canada about how do you expose Canadians to a national identity. And in the United States, there's this question, which is its own you know, can of worms, about how it's dealing with these matters of uh, whether there's, there's a bias or a censorship of, of certain political viewpoints. Um, so I think that, in general, my frustration is that these, these matters of discoverability in the big sense of the word aren't necessarily being addressed. And many ways, what you see getting caught up is very political interpretations of these deeper issues that, that are about, say, algorithmic power and influence in a platform society, and yet being you know conflated with something like Canadian content or political censorship. No, I know you've done some work on, on accountability-related issues at the CRTC. Given that, ultimately, the way the government is, is, has approached this issue is to sort of lay out fairly high-level objectives, but with some pretty clear criteria of what they want to see happen, but then leave so much of the granularity, so much of the decision-making to the CRTC to decide. I think that's fueled a lot of the concern and a lot of the uncertainty. Can you reflect a little bit on your own experience getting engaged in that kind of policy process and what it might portend for uh, the effort to deal with these sorts of issues at the CRTC should should Bill C-10 become legislation? Yeah, that's a great question for me, and one that I I, I want to give some context. I've been involved with the CRTC since I think 2015 when it was the Let's Talk Broadband, and I've been really involved in internet measurement. And so I've been for years trying to talk about how the CRTC can can better understand technical systems, and that that's been a constant concern and and a constant disappointment, to be honest. And so I think one immediate takeaway is that a lot of my experience with the CRTC, looking at how for internet measurement, which is, is not the same as algorithmic accountability, but I would say more similar than people, people make it out to be, uh, the CRTC has largely outsourced those questions. And so particularly right now, what I want to highlight is that I've been involved since 2019 in the CRTC decision uh, 21-141, for those following along, uh, which is about Bell Canada being authorized to use an AI system to block fraudulent and malicious calls on the transit over its network. So this is has, I think, wide, wide implications because now all traffic potentially passing through Bell's networks and it's, it is being filtered through this AI system. And myself and Reza Rajabujan have been really working on trying to identify or trying to get information about that. And we've been pushing back at the CRTC, which has really required all interveners to get more details, even basic details about how the system works, to sign an NDA or non-disclosure agreement. And so I actually think that that's really what looks like the future to me in C10 of what would happen if the CRTC becomes responsible for, say, algorithmic accountability, is that private platforms would claim this is confidentiality, and that largely it would only be vested parties that would be willing to sign those NDAs. And it would look then a lot like what the Australian News Code is proposing, which is a fairly concentrated news industry brokering relations with a fairly concentrated social media industry 
ostensibly through a regulator. And so to me, that's a really adverse outcome. And I've and in seeing it play out in the CRTC decision where we're getting so little transparency about the algorithmic accountability of this AI system and that we're still waiting whether the CRTC would mandate, say, an algorithmic impact assessment. We're trying to push them for that, but that's been a challenge. It really makes me doubtful that we'll see anything then the CRTC, you know, basically taking this opaque process and making it opaque just in a different way. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that provides, I think, in some ways a perfect segue when you start talking about, you know, who will have that kind of access, who's organized enough, in effect, to sign the NDAs and to ensure that their voice is heard and is part of that process. Because, you know, one of the criticisms that, that has arisen, and you were very early in identifying this as a concern, is that there are a whole series of creators, some of them who are the most active on some of these platforms, whose voices really have not figured prominently, if at all, in the C10 debate, you know, the Minister Guibault is oftentimes very quick to rhyme off lists of established groups that that support his bill when he doesn't want to answer a question directly in the House. But noticeably absent have been the online digital creators, you know, the Lily Sings of the world that have established global followings on platforms like YouTube, TikTok, Twitch, a whole range of different places. And, you know, to what extent are they taken into account in the bill, you know, have they had any real voice at all as part of this process? I think that that firstly puts off one of the disappointments about how the reaction to the Yale report or the BTLR report has been done, where the BTLR report makes a number of sweeping recommendations for how the CRTC should be reformed and improving public interest participation. And I think that one of the big gaps that I at least see is that many creators so when i think when i say creators i think of you know my students who are streaming on twitch who are trying to make games and app stores who are trying to access and you know and arguably make money off the internet in all sorts of different ways you know this is niche and indie and how well captured that is in the bill and how well represented because i think that we're still hoping to see these types you know these types of creators better self-organized. And I think that that's something we're starting to see around Spotify, but it's still a, it's still a gap. And I think it further kind of complicates what is this user-generated content question? I, this is one of the things I want to kind of push back on is that often what we see, and I learned this from you know my colleague, Stephanie Duguay, who's talked about LGBTQ influencers who are both being commercial and political, as well as the great work by Robin Kaplan and Tarleton Gillespie who talk about YouTube star systems, is that there's a real blurring now of user-generated content, what we think about as expressly, you know, speech that is, you know, made of someone's personal opinion. And the, what's the reality of many people who've grown up online is that they see creating online as a way to make a living and an income. And they do so in really fraught situations where they don't entirely know how their content will be promoted. Demonetization, the fact that they might say the wrong thing and all of a sudden they're cut off from their ad stream. Very loose or changing rules around platforms. Basically, labor rights for a whole host, of, for a new generation of creators is something which is deeply needed and yet entirely missing from what I what I think of as C10. And that's the thing that I want to, and that's what I really would love to see is like a clarity about that. And I think that there's possible to put into a bill or at least a way forward where you see that. And that that's something which I see quite lacking is that, you know, for commercial creators, which is a huge swath, that there's better 
that there are more presence in the C10 bill. And, I, and, I, and that's where I see it being a, you know, it would have been a clear, it's a clear missed opportunity. Yeah, no, we've started, I think, to hear more and more of precisely those kinds of creators speak out. And I think, you know, at least several have noted to me that it's striking that the government emphasizes the need for platforms to pay. Yet the vision is that the payments wouldn't go to those creators who are making a living using the platform. In effect, it's in certain respects, it's these new digital creators who develop audiences and then some of the established lobby groups swoop in and they're the ones demanding payment. Um, how how do, how would you go about addressing this issue, given, as you've noted, it's not one that's well addressed in the bill at the moment? Well, I, I think you've really emphasized, I think, what is a big gap is that many of these creators don't feel themselves reflected in the broadcasting system or in the broadcasting system that's being proposed. And to me, that anxiety, and as an academic, that kind of perpetual anxiety is what I live with. But but that anxiety is something which I would love to have seen more felt in C10. Because what is at stake here is asserting that Canadian cultural policy can be meaningful and help a whole generation of creators who've who've seen the, largely the absence of that. And that is a big lift. And that's not something that you're going to fix overnight. And I would think that that's what speaks to some of the limitations in C10 is that responsibility of reasserting you know, cultural policy for an internet age is a huge undertaking. And one that I think in the modest reforms you see the Broadcasting Act, I don't, don't know where that's going to come from. And so I mean, immediately what we're talking about is, is ensuring the stable funding for creators. And you look at the taxation question, I think that that's something where you know, we're looking at how to ensure that creators have access to funds and reforms to cultural funding institutions, like what's been happening at the Arts Council to try to streamline its programs. That's, to me, interesting. It's not my expertise, but I do think that that's one part of it. And then the part for me, then, is also about algorithmic accountability, where you're trying to think about potentially what are the ways that optimization decisions, which is something I wanted to kind of emphasize, which is not the algorithm itself, but what the what type of behavior these algorithms are trying to elicit and what is it optimizing for? Maybe those things can be made at more public. We have methods that might help and teach, you know, creators that are trying to navigate this, at least you know, how these automated decision-making is being made about them. And it's that second part, which I really think is also, you know, a clear ask and something that clearly could connect in a nuanced way with the broadcasting system. And, and that link is still very tense and ambiguous. Yeah, no, those are some great ideas. It's, I think, striking that, you know, this bill didn't get a whole lot of attention for many, many months and then suddenly burst into the public consciousness and for the last month or more has become one of the, the lead political issues uh, that the government and, and Ottawa has been grappling with. And yet the kind of discussion that I think you've been raising and sorts of issues that you've been raising still have not come to the fore. It's in a sense, just political management as opposed to addressing a forward looking policy. Well, and there is talk of an online harms bill and there's talk of what what is also a whole can of worms, which is C11, and how, what that'll mean for automated decision-making reforms to Pepita. And I mean, I have reservations to what's being done there as well. And yet, when I look at the idea that there will be a renewal of cultural policy and that it's C10, yeah, it seems pretty lacking. And the other part, which I also say is that, you know, as a, as a parent with young kids during a pandemic, you know, it's very hard to pay attention and to kind of do this service work 
is that there was also a whole discussion about what the future of the CBC would do and it's in its renewal at the CRTC. And, you know, those part, you know, I think particularly what's the future of public broadcasting and what's the future of C10 is another missing piece for me because that's a really important direction and always has been part of the broadcasting system. And if you're, you know, propping up, I think the idea, I think, you know, one of the central ambiguities is whether broadcasting is about, uh, you know, access to markets or is about, you know, ensuring that Canadians have access to good quality content and in, in part as part of a welfare state. I mean, it's that latter part that really, I think, is always talked about in the rhetorical and talked about in the rhetorical here. And I really want to see what does that mean in practical terms and in the reforms of C10. And I'm still left wondering. Well, you know, it's, uh, there, it's, it's it's rather incredible to think that there has been all this discussion of build that is build as being sort of the the up that long awaited modernization of the legislation that's, that was created decades ago. And yet I think you succeeded in identifying so many questions that remain unresolved and unanswered. Uh, Fenwick, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Michael, thanks for having me. It was a great discussion. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.